At special times, believers in the Old and New Testaments believe that they ought to make covenants together vowing that they would obey King Jesus. Following in their footsteps, in 1638, Scottish Christians signed the National Covenant which rejected the enforcement of prelacy on the Presbyterian Church. When threatened to have these rights taken away, the Scottish Covenanters in 1639 united under the Blue Banner which read, For Christ's Crown and Covenant. As direct theological descendants of the Scottish Covenanters, the RPCNA still honors the Blue Banner for what it stands for, that Jesus is the only head and king of his church. The Blue Banter podcast's goal is to go about informing the reforming by introducing you to our pastors and under-shepherds of Christ's church. By listening to this podcast, you will have greater clarity on the blessings and challenges faced by each of our congregations. We pray that the Lord blesses you through this podcast for Christ's crown and his covenant. Well, we want to welcome everybody to another installment of the Blue Banter podcast, a podcast with the goal of introducing the members of the RPCNA to the pastors of the RPCNA and also with a goal of serving uh, young and aspiring pastors looking to serve in our denomination by interviewing men who are already doing so. Uh, my name is Joe Smith. I am the pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Westminster, Colorado, right outside of Denver. And I'm Aaron Murray, the pastor of Marianne Reformed Presbyterian Church here in uh, North Central Indiana. And we are pleased to have uh, Pete Smith. I uh, was referring to him as the great Pete Smith, and he told me, I don't know that man, but uh, I'm sure that uh, we'll all benefit from uh, the wisdom that uh, Pastor Smith has gleaned um, in his years of ministry. So, um, Pastor Smith, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Yeah. Uh, So there's been kind of a theme with uh, some of our guests that we've been interviewing. Um, Four of them thus far have either already put out books or have upcoming books in the uh, grass market press. Um, So it's kind of a a fun thing for us to get to hear about uh, these books and get to hear about kind of the process that uh, uh, the men have gone through in writing them. And as uh, Providence has it, um, you are in the midst of uh, publishing a book in Grass Market Press, and I wonder um, what information could you tell us about that book? Well, I was asked to write a book uh, under the title of Remembering the Poor. Actually, that's the title I gave it. I was given a different title, and I said, that's the slant I want to take. Okay. And it comes out of my experience with um, Mercy Ministry, Uh both in the church I'm at now here in Wilkinsburg, but really stemming a lot from my time in Southern Maryland and my exposure to rural poverty and suburban poverty. Uh, it exists. This has been a long interest of mine. In fact, I, I tell people that when I was in high school, uh, as I read through the minor prophets, became deeply convicted mm-hmm. that God was a God of justice, mm-hmm. wants to do justice. And so I had thought long ago, I'm going to go to college, major in political science, go on to graduate school to do law school. And I like to think that uh, Chief Justice John Roberts is in my seat had I gone that direction. Mm -hmm. But uh, God got a hold of me in my senior year of college and said, not to law school, but to seminary. So same interest, I said, well, instead of being a practitioner uh, of these things, I will be a, well, instead of working in the court system for that, I would do it as a preacher. So same focus on justice, preach it as opposed to to ruling it. And then through my pastoral experience, actually got much more into the practical side of 
dealing with uh, leading Bible studies in a local county jail, working in a pregnancy care center, being an overnight shelter coordinator for an emergency homeless shelter. So the book kind of flows out of that. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hoping to do in the book would be to convince people to give. It's remembering the poor. Mm-hmm. So Paul, when he met the elders in Jerusalem, they gave him the right hand of fellowship and said, go to the Gentiles, remember the poor. Mm-hmm. And we need to do that more and more. And I think many of us have, not intentionally, but we've organized our lives in such a way that we don't actually anymore rub shoulders with the poor. They're, they're somewhere else. Uh, we've insulated and isolated ourselves. And money can do that. I mean, even just middle class, a middle class lifestyle can insulate me from poverty and so forth. So I'm hoping that the book will move people to remember the poor. And, and to learn some some tactics, maybe some some strategies on dealing with people and really kind of develop a, a heart of generosity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. When you uh, when you're talking about the minor prophets, uh, I'm pretty confident I know what you mean. But it, the minor prophets are very uh, they're they're a neglected portion of Scripture. So when someone hears you say something like, well, the minor prophets convicted me that God is a God of justice. Um, what, what do you mean by that? Why would you say that? Well. He has showed you a man, what does the Lord require of you, but to do Mm -hmm. justice, Mm -hmm. to love mercy and walk humbly with God. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Those are recurring themes uh, in in the Minor Prophets. As they went to latter Judah, latter Israel in those days of oppression, and they're dealing with economic issues for the most, Mm -hmm. often throughout. So... uh, the poor are being oppressed. They're being trampled on. They're adding house to house, all those kind of things. And, it, and to me, it was just as I read them back to back to back to back to realize, oh, there's a theme that runs through these. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just Isaiah. It's not just Jeremiah. It's every prophet who keeps coming back to this theme, which we find very much, of course, in the Psalter. Uh, God is often presented as God of justice, and he will do justice, and he will do um, bring equity for the peoples and so forth throughout. So uh, that's the that's what I meant by it seems to be a theme of the minor prophets. Yeah, and when we think about um, kind of the exile of Israel, um, we often think this is exclusively because of idolatry um, and um, worshiping on the high places and that kind of thing. And of course, it is. But also, as you read through, as you're saying, the minor prophets over and over again, you have the theme of neglecting the poor and the orphan and the widow. And, of course, it's something that James picks up on in his book as well. True religion is to care for the uh, orphan and the widow. Um, So I think it's good. Um, As we think about the church um, and our areas of growth that we need when it comes to ministering to the to the poor and the widow, how much do you think that uh, the the welfare of the government has played uh, an effect in that. Like it, it seems to me, I guess this is a leading question. It seems to me that the church, in some sense, has outsourced our responsibility to minister to the poor to our government. And I think generally that's true. Um, and I think that's the danger of of socialism. Mm-hmm. I touch on this a bit. Uh, I teach part time uh, American government and economics to high school seniors at a local Christian school. And we talk about this component uh, of our of our life together and the safety net and so forth. And 
really the fundamental changes that happened in America uh, in the 1920s after the Great Depression and so forth to realize this is a massive issue that was beyond states. It was beyond local communities to address. And so they kind of looked to the federal government because that's where the deep pockets were. And we began then to develop this. It's a governmental issue as opposed to from uh, like Catholic social thought of the doctrine of subsidiarity, which is those who are closest to the issue should be the first ones to address it, mm-hmm. which I really like. I said, all right, if there's a neighborhood problem, we don't immediately call the government. You talk to your neighbors. Hey, can we address this? If the neighbors can't do it together, maybe we need a little bit of professional help from our local government, but we don't call immediately on the national government. We don't call on the state government. And as the issues get bigger, so I think that if that happened, there was this immediately jump to the federal government. And so states were quite happy to take over that responsibility. And and the church was happy to let them do it. Um, so I think if we take that back from the government, of course, there are tax issues involved in that. If they were taxing us less, we'd have more to give. Mm-hmm. But uh, would people give more? I don't I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I do think so. I do think those things sometimes go hand in hand, but they're. Mm-hmm. But to me, poverty alleviation is all personal. And we've, we've thought about this being, um, let's look to the professionals to do it, but I think every household can do it to some degree. Mm-hmm. When I did my um, doctorate of ministry degree at RTS in Orlando, Florida, my dissertation was written on the doctrine of uh, hospitality, really answering the question, how can the small church respond to the issue of homelessness? And to me, it's Christian hospitality. We don't need to build shelters. Christians that have an extra bedroom are the shelter. We just have to really change our mindset to say that we're going to welcome the stranger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- that's a big hurdle. Mm-hmm. That's that's a big step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, this is going to be a well-needed book, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting a copy. Do you have a rough date on uh, when the book will come out? <laughs> Uh, I had a rough date. Okay. <laughs> I was being I was being wildly optimistic. Okay. So I would like to have a draft to the publisher by summer or in the summer. Okay. Uh, okay. So I I was on a short writing break, and you say so. I, and I had at the end of the break, I had more written than I started with. So I thought that was progress, and nice. I have much more of an outline for the book, uh, nine or ten chapters in some sense, developing a lot of the parables. Jesus talks a lot about money in his parables. So uh, I'm going to use that as kind of the window mm-hmm. uh, to to look at what does mercy ministry look like? How do we remember the poor? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because we're rich. And I'm afraid that we don't, we don't feel like we're rich. Mm-hmm. We all live with people like us. And so we all think we're kind of middle class. That's the American dream is everybody's middle class. But there are upper class and there are lower class. We don't like to think of ourselves in those terms, but we but we have it. But even millionaires, if they hang out with other millionaires, probably don't feel particularly wealthy because mm-hmm. everybody in their circle are millionaires. Mm-hmm. So we're wealthy. And particularly when you stick American incomes and American wealth onto a global scale. Welcome to the one percent. Mm-hmm. So. Again, part of the hope of my book is, and this was a, a discovery to me, and I don't remember when it happened, but becoming convicted that when the Bible was talking to the rich, it was talking to me. Hmm. It was not talking about the guy out there. It, of course, it included 
uh, you know, Bill Gates mm -hmm. and Jeff Bezos. But no, 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 it included me because on a global scale, I'm in the top 5% of income and wealth. Yeah, yeah. That's, and it that's includes good. you as well. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, um, I don't know how much experience you have with Marianne. Um, <laughs> I joke with people about Marianne all the time. And I, and I love it here, and I'm very thankful that the Lord has placed us here. It is a very economically deprived um, city. But even here, we're infinitely more wealthy than places like in Africa or, or other mm -hmm. uh, nations as well. So, yeah, it's a good word to look at yourself as the rich and let the spirit convict you. <laughs> uh, Joe, do you have any other thoughts on the on the book? Yeah, a couple that would that'll probably play into our, our second question. We want to ask Pete as well. Um, and this could be kind of a, a landmine kind of question, but I think you kind of are someone that can with, with the book and thinking through these things and your kind of ministry context you're in. Just wondered if, if there's some principles that stick out or that can be clearly distinguished uh, in your mind or how you distinguish these things. What are some, some principal differences between kind of cultural social justice and a, a biblical view of social justice, because certainly there is a biblical view of social justice. And in a lot of the ways you've been speaking about that uh, justice for the widow and the orphan and mercy ministry, but are, are just, there some things since this is kind of a hot button uh, phrase and um, issue in our culture that could just help Christians and perhaps even pastors um, that may not be in the kind of ministry context you're in and have these things kind of perhaps more on your mind than it may be on somebody in rural Kansas or wherever. Um, just some, some brief helps as, as little or as much as you'd like on that. Yeah. And I, and I have to say in response to that, it's more definitions. So the, the Bible never uses the term, as far as I know, social justice. It doesn't use the term economic justice. It doesn't use, it doesn't modify justice. So that's the first thing is that it's not this breakdown that somehow social justice is different from other kinds of justice. So there is justice and then there is grace and there is, there's mercy. And so I think in the, in the cultural realm, you know, who's defining what's just, is it, equality, everybody being treated the same. Well, again, in, in a classroom setting, I'll have that conversation, you know, what's, what's fair, what's just. Some people come into the classroom far better prepared as students than others. Family life, um, just academic uh, nature of how God has created them. They just have a ready mind. They're really good at math. They may be really bad at foreign languages, but they're good at math. They're good at thoughtfulness. Uh, some others are not. They're really good athletes. So what is what do you mean by equality in that? Well, biblical equality is, well, in one sense, getting what you deserve, uh, giving one his due or her due. I mean, that's that would be justice. Mercy then fits in with that to say, OK, knowing that not everybody shows up with the same preparedness. What can we do not in order to make people equal, but what is merciful? So what, it, what is right? And again, the, the whole flood of transgenderism as it's played out now in women's sports, for instance, you know, what is that equality or is that something different? And who's defining this? 
it's certainly not not just for the women who have to now compete with biological males, that kind of way. So I think it would be your definition. So where do we look for justice? Well, the law of God tells us what that looks like. So you don't inflate your money. Justice is honest money. It's in the economic realm. It's honest weights and measures, uh, those kind of things. So that's what's rightly do one another. We deal with each other fairly. You come down to, I would like to be treated in the marketplace like the other guys. So I'm going to love my neighbor as myself in the marketplace. Nobody likes to be abused. Nobody likes to be used. Nobody likes to be deceived. So we don't do that for others. So that's, that's justice. That's equality at that point. Um, that's not necessarily what the world thinks about social justice. So I try not to use those kind of monikers and just talk about what's just what's right, what's fair, and then to say, okay, for the widow then, what's merciful? Because God talks about both. And I, and I think you have to talk about both at the same time. So I'm much more happy to talk about uh, restitution as an act of mercy, maybe perhaps than, than justice, though justice has something to say about it. There's always things about, uh, well, what if you know, the event happened centuries ago? What does that look like? Well, we may be talking mercy and grace less than justice. And to say, God has a lot to say about that too. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but. Yeah, no, it does. That's, that's, that's helpful. That's what I was looking for. And then just kind of um, one other kind of related thing, perhaps more related to your book, but I think will be a, a good segue into the next question. Um, I remember when we had Lucas Hanna out at our church, given a, a missionary presentation I just kind of asked him afterwards, you know, because, you know, often when something's like our thing or our specialty, um, it's it, it that shows in, in what we do, you know. Um, and so for someone who's not a missionary, et cetera, you know, I was just kind of asking him, how can we be do little things to help our whole congregation be a little bit more mindful of missions? Um, and he he just he, he talked about you know, keeping literature out, keeping it in the, the public prayers, um, having having maybe a couple giving things, uh, special special gift opportunities through the year, just these little things that can kind of keep it on mind. So I didn't know, again, not with, with um, asking you to, to reveal too much of your book or anything like that, but what are a couple things that a young pastor like uh, Aaron and myself, any pastor, for, for instance, or even even members um, can think, could think about doing in their own congregations just to help them remember the poor, uh, li little things that aren't going to, you know, we're radically going to change everything we do in, in one, one fell swoop. But what are some baby steps that we could all be taking? Uh, one thing is to talk up the diaconate. Um, God is so concerned about the poor in the New Testament that in some ways he create. there's an office. Some would say it's an extension, maybe the Levitical office from the Old Testament, because they're very much involved in that kind of ministry. But they themselves are the recipients of the tithe. So in the New Testament, you find the diaconate and even for Reformed Presbyterians, the diaconate is to lead the, the congregation in mercy kind of things. So and I don't. I've heard, you know, the term he's just a deacon. Well, no, there's no such thing as just a deacon. I think, wow, you're a deacon. If you are leading the congregation that in, in mercy ministry, that is a profound calling. So encouraging deacons, recruiting deacons, 
uh, to serve uh, in, in that capacity, I think is important. I think also, if your congregation is not in a position, place where they would meet poor people regularly, that kind of thing, is to contact local nonprofits that do that and have them come into your congregation and talk to the congregation about, here's what we do. Here are the needs. Obviously, Marion is going to have them perhaps much more right on the doorstep, perhaps, than Westminster. So in Westminster, you might need to talk to others. You say, man, you know, where, where is it? Because it's not where we are. We're in, you know, suburbia or whatever. Where, where is, where is the, the poverty? Uh, in Wilkinsburg, uh, in Marion, it's very clearly right around the church building. We don't have to go very far before we meet it. People are calling the church looking for help. They're asking for assistance. Uh, I think so. That's one way. Just get tied in with some of the local nonprofits. Talk to other pastors and to say, "Hey, what what are the needs in the community?" Particularly for a new person, new pastor, I think needs to find out what has marked the history of the community in which they're located. So uh, when I give a church history exam at Presbytery, I always kind of want to know from the guy, "Tell me the history of your own congregation. Why is it where it is? What has marked it?" Uh, what's the trauma in that church? Those kind of things. What's what's going on around the neighborhood? Because uh, that tells you a lot about what are the needs will be there. I think that uh, I think a number of churches take a special offering for the poor in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. Again, that would highlight it to say we have a mercy fund. We have a mercy fund that's not budgeted at all. It's completely funded by special gifts, and we take six of them during the Lord's Supper. Of course, it's always available. If it runs low, we simply tell the congregation there have been a number of needs, both within and without the congregation. We need we need you to give more. Um, so and people do. And that to me is one of the line items that I'm most interested in in our annual budget to say, what did we give last year in terms of mercy? Mm -hmm. um, so I think those would be some ways. And then just go for a walk. Uh you know, go with one of those nonprofit leaders into the communities in which they serve. Um, that'd be one way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Thank you. I was, I was taking, taking some notes myself there. That's, uh, that's helpful. So kind of with that, um, something that Aaron and I have had the privilege of doing so far, you will, uh, you will cap it for us, if you will. But uh, we were both blessed by Dr. Whitless class where he um, brought uh, Kyle Borg in to speak about the blessings and challenges of rural ministry. He brought in George Gregory, or at least, you know, these guys zoomed in or, or whatever, uh, to speak about suburban ministry. And you actually were able to come in class and speak about the blessings and challenges of urban ministry. And those um, lectures were um, just so helpful to us. Uh, so we wanted to kind of, in a way, get, you know, at least some some of those things out to the broader audience of, of members and so forth, and even guys who are just beginning to maybe think about seminary even, what are um, some of the blessings and challenges of urban ministry? Well, the blessing of urban ministry is there are lots of people. There, there's no shortage of people to meet. Uh, there's no shortage of ministry opportunities. So that, that's, a, that's a big one. Uh, just the, the blessing of living in an urban context is culture. Um, place like Pittsburgh, it's a small city. It has lots of just cultural benefits. So whether you like the opera, symphony, 
things like that. Uh, it's a center for that. It's got sports teams. So just it just teams with life, uh, that kind of thing. Of course, with all of that comes a certain transience. That's one of the challenges is you meet people and then they move. Um, they, they came to the city for work and then work moves them or their job gets outsourced and that kind of thing. So that's that's the, that's probably the other challenge is lots of people and transients. And so in, in some ways, too, the challenge of urban ministry, and this has to be then a decision on philosophy of kind of ministry, what kind of church do you want to be? Because Reformed Presbyterian Church, uh, with our particular distinctives, we draw people from a distance. And I know congregations in which people will drive half hour, 45 minutes, even an hour to get to worship, which makes it a challenge than what happens during the week. Because on a Lord's Day morning, you might be able to make that drive because there's less traffic. Uh, Wednesday evening, that's a whole different story. So we have intentionally tried to be a parish kind of model to say, we're not going to say you can't drive in. But when we pray, we're predominantly praying for the needs of Wilkinsburg, our particular borough. Pittsburgh is kind of in the background, but it's there. But we're more interested in Wilkinsburg. We want to be a church for Wilkinsburg. So we're not marketing ourselves to somebody living in the South Hills, uh, particularly in our community. If you cross a river or go through a tunnel, mm -hmm. you're in a different community. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we have all kinds of reasons maybe to chant, to plant other churches that are on the other side of the tunnel or on the other side of the bridge. So for us, Wilkinsburg has its own identity. Um, it's a negative identity, but it has its own identity. So we've kind of focused there. So again, that's kind of the challenge is how do you, how do you focus ministry when it could be all over the place? Uh, and people have bring ministry, all kinds of opportunities and say, well, you know, we have a menu here. We've only got so many so much money, so many people, we have to focus on only a few things and do them well and meet the needs of those close around us because we want to be community. Urban context, you might meet people that don't drive, that are completely reliant on public transportation. That might affect where a church building would be placed. It might be when you meet. Uh, and again, it might be that focus to say, we want to meet the people around us that will walk to church or be able to take public transportation without spending two hours to get here, uh, that kind of thing. And of course, the, one of the big challenges people always ask about would be crime. Uh, those that's We're probably more crime-centric in urban environments than in rural. Um, Kyle could set me straight on that if that's not the case, but there's more people. Mm -hmm. There are more resources, there's more violence. And I don't know what it's like in Marion, but in Wilkinsburg, um, there is violence and that's its, that's its reputation because it had that in the past. Uh, there's less of it now, but once you gain a reputation for that, it's it's hard to lose that. Mm -hmm. We have a reputation for being a steel city. Steel has not been an important part of Pittsburgh now for decades, and yet we're still the Steelers. We're still known as the steel city and go, no, it's healthcare. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's healthcare, it's education. So it's quite different, but the reputation hangs on. So my, I, mean, I, my, I would say those are probably some of the challenges of urban context, uh, particularly for a young family to say, you know, how do we fit in? Will we be safe? Will we be able to afford it? Mm -hmm. uh, I think of, and again, urban can be very different. Urban can be very poor and urban can be very upscale. We're probably not in a place to church plant in San Francisco. We wouldn't be able to afford it. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, 
um, or Cambridge. You know, we have a church in Cambridge. I'm glad we have one because we wouldn't be able to start one now. Mm -hmm. um, so again, it's two sides of that, depending on what kind of urban context you're talking about. Yeah, I remember uh, we were taking a, an evangelism class and uh, I was with Jonathan Cruz, who interned with you, a um, mm -hmm. good friend of both of ours. And so we were doing um, some door-to-door -door evangelism. And as Jonathan and I were trying to figure out where we wanted to go, I was like, well, let's go um, to Wilkinsburg. Let's just kind of go door-to-door -to, -door to the churches around there. And you, know, you mentioned the, the crime. Um, and we went to one house and, you know, we knocked on the door. And we were starting to have a really good conversation um, with this young man. And we invited him to church. And he was very enthusiastic, like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll go to church. So we're getting really, really excited. And uh, apparently he thought we were his parole officers or something. And if he came to church, uh, <laughs> uh, he would get hours knocked off of his parole. And then when he found out mm -hmm. who we are, uh, he shut the door on us. Um, but that does give you kind of a taste of, of just even the surrounding neighborhood that you're in. Um, very, very beautiful church, um, very pretty building, and just very impoverished area. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So again, they're, they're overwhelming needs. Mm -hmm. And again, that depending on how you respond to those, you could be overwhelmed by them. In, mm -hmm. And we experienced some of that in Southern Maryland. That's one of those things where you have a learning curve. You say, wow, if you help the first two people that call, they talk to their friends. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> and then you get inundated by phone calls. Uh, can you help with this, help with that? They're looking for money and it's just, whoa, okay. And that some of that can't be learned other than through hard knocks and experience and, oh, okay, I need to, I can't learn this from a book. Yeah. Um, so as you think about your your own congregation um, and, and your community too, and when it comes to really your main priority as a pastor, and that is, you know, preaching and teaching the word of God, um, What's your philosophy of preaching? Um, are you a kind of a more um, discriminatory preacher? Are you focusing on explanation, application, that kind of thing? And then um, as you go about writing your sermons every week, this is kind of the perennial question that, that Joe and I ask is helpful for us, is what does your uh, sermon preparation look like week in, week out? Well, I, I preach expository sermons for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, so just go through a book. Mm -hmm. And and I like that approach simply because it makes you deal with difficult stuff that you might not otherwise address. Mm -hmm. I put off preaching through Second Peter for a long time because there was just stuff in Second <laughs> Peter that I, I'm not sure I want to do stuff in there. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I went through First Peter because I thought that was really relevant at the time for our congregation. And then Second Peter just kind of sitting there and said, yeah, we'll come back to that at some point in the future, which we did. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, it was very challenging, but mm -hmm. you can't just, if you're doing topical all of the time, you can avoid certain topics. So mm -hmm. the text just presents issues and you get, you get to preach them, you get to grapple with them yourself. So I like that. I do preach topically from time to time. So right before an election, I will always preach on some aspect of whether it's the magistrate, the voter, whatever it is, uh, mm. get an opportunity to present uh, one of our distinctive doctrines of uh, media control kingship of Jesus Christ and how it applies to the nation. So I always look at that. So just be aware that, okay, that's coming up. So I'll, might tie it in where I am, but likely it'll be a whole different sermon, standalone, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of thing. So I'm always asking the question, so what? So if you ask about, you know, where the focus goes, to me, it's much more application. Mm -hmm. 
I, this is not new to me, but I borrowed it from one of my um, professors in my doctorate of ministry program to say, I like to put the cookies on the bottom shelf. Mm -hmm. I want to make them accessible to everybody. And so within my congregation, I have PhDs and I have people that are illiterate, mm -hmm. cannot read. That's a nice wide spectrum mm -hmm. and the ones who can't read are not children i mean there may be children but i have adults that can't read mm -hmm. they come from our come from our neighboring community so it's just a real challenge to say how do you how do you preach this this broad of an audience mm -hmm. and we'll do this all the time with adults older people young people new believers people who've been in the faith for 70 plus years that's always a challenge for the pastor and the makeup of the congregation so but to me i'm always asking the question so what so what so what? And I'm typically asking that when I'm listening to a sermon as well. So what? I mean, give, give me the point. I mean, what? So uh, let, let's get there. So in my preparation, I mean, my exegesis is I try to do that really early in the week. So Monday, again, in my schedule, my, uh, my morning starts with going to school. Uh, I typically have taught first and second periods of the day, which would be eight, eight to you know, a couple of minutes after 10. So that's kind of what I would block out this year. I'm doing second and third period, which is less ideal, but that kind of locks in my morning in terms of the teaching. So um, the rest of the, the time that is mine, um, I don't have to be anywhere particularly. So exegesis of a passage early, spend time with it. Um, and some of that's with the original language, but some of that is also reading various English translations and where they diverge that's when mm -hmm. i might go all right i need to spend a little more time in the greek and the hebrew so i'm not a good language scholar i had good professors in seminary i wasn't the best language student it just doesn't come easy to me in fact that's one of the reasons why i resisted going to seminary law school looked much more appealing to me because i thought <laughs> man i go to seminary i got to learn greek and hebrew and when <laughs> i was in high school like i didn't like german Though God in his providence, German structurally looks a whole lot like Greek. Mm. <laughs> so uh, unbeknownst to me, he was preparing me for that. That's also what kept me away from doing a, doc a uh, PhD because I didn't want to have to learn Latin, German, and others mm. at that level to say, this is not what I want. Um, so not what I'm good at. So I went with a doctorate of ministry degree. But uh, so sort of study with the exegesis. Um, I look at a, a handful of commentaries. But again, commentaries aren't overly helpful to me, particularly when they start applying it, because I said, you're, you're not pastoring my congregation. Yep. So after you kind of know what the text is about, say, all right, so what? <laughs> How does this apply in Wilkinsburg, as opposed to you know Denver? If I'm going to come out and, and, and preach at Westminster, I'd have to redo it. Um, because for one thing, I don't, know your, I don't know your cultural context. I know mine. So I'd have to do a lot of homework to say, well, how does this apply there? Uh, periodically, I would preach at the RP home and to retired people and nursing care. It preaches the application is quite different from a young family with children who are working, parenting, those kind of things. So the applications are really quite different. Exegesis doesn't change. So once the exegetical point is always the same. Uh, so even when I've gone back to re-preach things that I've done in the past, Said, so, all right, the exegesis is all there. That hasn't changed, but man, I'm preaching this sermon in an entirely different place. Everything else has to be rewritten. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
so I would say that's that's really the challenge then. So my hope when particularly when my wife was working full time was to always have my sermon done by Friday afternoon. So then Saturday, I could let it just kind of percolate and I could spend time with my wife. Um, so that was kind of the that's the guide. I still have that hope. So start to outline stuff even on Wednesday, but let it sit for a while. I mean, OK, I know the exegesis. So what? What does this mean? in 2023 post COVID in Wilkinsburg. So that's, that to me is, and, and you're gonna ask a very different, con, you know, you're gonna have a different question in your own mind because you're in different cultural contexts. Um, I have minorities in my congregation and we're, we're getting more of them. And I'm trying to think, okay, what does this mean for them? And I need to do a lot more research to know what their experience has been. Um, so again, it's not Greek. It's right now I'm in Ephesians. So the issue in our cultural context is not Jew and Gentile. Though we do have a Jewish community nearby, we don't think of the church in terms of Jew, Gentile, what food is coming to fellowship lunch. Oh, there's pork there. That'll be offensive to somebody. Well, that's not how we think. In our time in the United States, it's much more skin color, mm-hmm. ethnicity immigrant status um that kind of thing and same principles but let's bring this division and unity what does it mean that the wall of separation has been broken down between jew and gentile well it means that any other wall that we might erect has also been broken down and that has implications implications in wilkinsburg which would be different from implications maybe in phoenix where it would be a very much Hispanic Anglo kind of divide. So again, it'd be cultural context and application would be central to my way of thinking about sermon prep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then people ask me from time to time, how long does it take you to put together a sermon? And I said, well, some weeks it's hard and it Mm -hmm. takes hours Mm -hmm. and some, they almost write themselves. Mm -hmm. Some took 20 years to write it. I just put it out in you know a couple of hours because it was all right there. And this is my lived experience. And man, I know what to do with this text and the spirit's given me this. Some other times it's like, man, it's Thursday and I'm still not real sure what, it, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do I use it? Uh, Clark Copeland, my Old Testament professor was fond of saying, you know, that the, the study's not done until it's applied. So what? So I can understand it intellectually but man, what? how does this relate to the 21st century middle-class America? Or, you know, how does this preach in South Sudan to their, in their context? So that's, that to me is the biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one thing, uh, Aaron and I both had the privilege of, of taking Calvin Trout's public speaking class with you. And uh, we would always talk about each night because we were staying at seminary at that mm-hmm. point in time up in the upstairs. We'd always talk about, man, Pete was good tonight, or you know, Pete, had, you know, so you were the uh, you were the star of the class in the sense of, of of guys that were partaking. Everything, uh, every little speech you gave was like a, a miniature sermon that was uh, convicting and edifying at the same time. But just that's kind of um, another thing we kind of ask guys is just, you know, when what do you take into the pulpit? You know, do you do you preach from no notes at all? Are you somewhere on the skeleton? Sp- outline spectrum are you a full manuscript guy do you go back and forth have, have things developed over time 
Uh, where are you at with that, um, with that whole deal? I've done two, I've done two things once, <laughs> but I said, and I didn't like either one of them. One is <laughs> the very first sermon I ever preached, I preached from a full manuscript. And in preaching, even I got confused by my syntax <laughs> because I'm a writer yeah. and I've written a, a doctoral dissertation, but I write well, but I write to be read, not heard. So I, so I never wrote another manuscript because I said, I can't, I can't write it out because I'll be reading it and it'll sound like I'm reading. So I said, have to go to an outline. The other thing that I did once that I hope to never do again, unless it's really intentional was I preached with no notes because uh, I had a sermon and I printed it and it was in my doc, dot matrix printer. Maybe you guys aren't, are you old enough to know what that is? <laughs> It's on a where all the paper was feeded together. I mean, it's all in one mm, big thing, and yeah. it just got and it was hanging down behind the printer, and I missed it. And I oh. grabbed the sermon that was sitting there, which was the week before. <laughs> and this is when I was living half an hour away. Oh man! And I realized, oh, I'm I'm in trouble. So one of my elders said, "I'll go get it." So I tried to explain where it was, and he showed up right before time to preach, and he had a different old one. <laughs> so i i kind of looked at i don't know i don't have my sermon and it was a it was memorable nobody knew i didn't have it they said later in fact it was one of my better ones and i knew it was probably because a couple of elders who knew it were praying for me like they don't mm. normally pray mm. they said you should preach without notes more often and i said only if you guys pray for me the way I know you were praying today yeah. would I do that. So, but I was terrified. I bet. Uh, and what I what I ended up doing was, of course, sticking on the main points because that's what I could remember. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All those little things you might have tucked in there, you know, just some neat exegetical observation you're going to make that doesn't really further the argument <laughs> or movement of the sermon. Yeah, that all fell by the way, and mm-hmm. they got the grain, the kernel, not anything else. So I don't do either of those. I have a fairly extensive outline and I do it in such a way, I always hold my Bible. Uh, I don't stand behind a pulpit. So I get out in front of that. Um, There's a story behind that, but I hold my notes in my Bible and I've been told people wonder if I use notes or not. Mm -hmm. I think it's fairly obvious that I'm using notes, but I guess because of the way my Bible is and all, they don't necessarily know that I'm looking at notes. So I do have extensive notes. It's usually two eight by 11 printed though in port um, in landscape. So four columns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that also tells me about how long the sermon will be. Right. So I know if I'm, if I'm writing it out, when I get to about this point of the page, this is where I need to end because I try to preach around 30 minutes. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll just, I would I'll rather just... somebody say, I'd rather have somebody say, man, I wish he had gone further. Right. And want more than mm-hmm. man? Will this guy ever quit? Um, so, I'd rather err on the shorter side than go too long. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. That's what I've even said about visitations or anything. Like, I would rather leave five minutes unless it's needed, right? But I would right, rather right. leave five minutes early and somebody say, "Oh, I wish he would have stuck around a little longer." Than man, he he just would not leave our house or whatever, you know. But I will just I'll verify your claim that 
most people that I've talked to about you that have attended your services think you preach with no notes. So because they see you with the Bible and they say, I just, I just don't think he uses any notes at all. So um, I know you say you think it may be obvious, but uh, it seems like at least it's not for your hearers or you, you do it better than you think that you do because uh, everybody I've talked to thinks Pete is a no notes preacher. <laughs> well, now they know better. <laughs> <laughs> now they know. Now they know. Now they know. No, it's good. I think I think you laid out um, real good reasons of, you know, again, knowing yourself, um, you know, knowing I'm somebody that I actually have gone to like a full manuscript. Now, I like um, Matthew Everhard's kind of he preaches from a full manuscript, but he tries to get the ideas in his head. And, and, and basically he doesn't ever look at it. Now, I'm not that right. talented yet, but um it's, it's helpful to me, but, but it's interesting what you said, like, I am not a writer. So when I write, I'm just speaking and, and it's going down on a page. And so even times where I do need to look down, it still just sounds like I'm talking because my wife, this is what I'd run into in seminary. She would read my papers and she's a grammar person and all of this, you know, and she's proofreading. She's like, why would you say it like this? Or I'm like, Cause that's how I would say it. Like, like how, so it was always a struggle for me to write like a writer, you know? Um, so I think that just plays into one of these things we're learning so far is just, you know, there's no right way to go about this. There's some mm -hmm. principles laid down when it comes to preaching and, and you're to be diligent and all of these things. But when it comes to, you know, a manuscript or notes or no notes, you know, there's, there's room on that spectrum for personal giftedness, Absolutely. knowing your context, et cetera, et cetera. So, so thanks for that. That was good. Um, kind of, a, a, well, I'll a just follow up with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because yeah, I'm yeah. a teacher and I like to be closer, you know, I don't preach from behind my pulpit. I don't expect anybody else to do that. I mean, every other right. guest preacher we've had, they've even said, you know, well, I'm, I'm planning to preach behind the pulpit. And I said, that's fine. That's great. Cause you're not me. <laughs> And I'm right. not you. So uh, do do what is what suits you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that is good. I'm, I'm kind of like an in the middle guy. I'll be in the pulpit. But, you know, just the more comfortable I've got, you know, I may be on the right side of the stage, the left side, mm -hmm. around the side of the pulpit, you know, all, all, all that stuff. Uh, yeah, I can testify uh, to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's good stuff. Um, one question. This is another one. I, you're the first person we've got to ask this question. Um, I've asked Keith Evans this uh, in the past. It's just a really helpful question for guys like like Aaron and I. Um, what would be some things? You know, it could be one thing. It could be a couple things. What are some things that you've learned or that uh, um, you've come to know now at this point in your ministry? that you, you, you wish you would have known in your first year, or if, or if you could somehow write a letter to, to Pete Smith in his first year of ministry, or even as he was preparing uh, to think about ministry, you know, when you were maybe still wrestling with law school, what are you going to do? What are some things you've learned about the ministry that you would, you know, hey, like, for instance, Keith Evans said, patience and peacemaking. Those would be two things that, that would be kind of mantras or principles that he wished he would have been better at going into his first year and what he would have preached himself. And again, this could all be different, you know, maybe another guy's good at those things or those wouldn't have been as applicable, you know, main principles or, or whatever, but what are, what are some things that Pete now would tell Pete then? Well, the, the big mistake that I made as a church planter was I didn't give away ministry enough. So 
I'm good at teaching. So I was good at leading small groups. What I failed to do was adequately train other small group leaders to their own groups and, and to go with it because people th then thought, oh, I'm getting lesser, a lesser guy. So I don't want to go to that small group. I want to go to the, mm -hmm. where, where the pastor's leading the group. That was a fatal mistake. Mm -hmm. And I would say it was a fatal mistake. So, uh, because at some point you, I couldn't do everything. And I hadn't done an adequate job of training guys to do what I did well. So I would say, number one, that was it. So I'd say give away, give away ministry, um, help them. So I should have met with my own small group leaders and say, that's the small group I lead, but you guys need to be leading Bible studies, uh, do evangelism. But as a church planner, that, you know, that we fell into it. You know, I'm there, I'm the full-time guy. So I had contacts, let's start the Bible study. And then it was hard just to start new ones. Um, that was a real challenge. So I think that's a, that's a massive one. Um, and then along the way, of course, all our, all the stuff we learned about mercy ministry and hospitality, um, it came, it came easy. There were, there were pains. There were some troubles about that. Um, so, but I would think that was the first one that give away, give away ministry, um, rely on other people. So, uh, they're, they're not a threat and they're, and they're going to be things that people do better than you, uh, rely mm -hmm. on that. Yeah. So, uh, and that's the strength of a session, I think, that works as a team. And it might be at some point you need to identify what is the role of each guy around the table on the session. Mm. And then when you start saying we, we want more elders or we need more elders, you might even know the kind of elder mm. you want. Because mm. we've got a there's, a, there's a spot maybe in the session that we need not just a body to fill it, but we need a particular gifted guy for this. So, and right now our session works really, really well. My session in um, Maryland, when I was pastoring there, it worked well. And when a certain guy wasn't at a meeting, we could tell hmm. because there was maybe some friction between other guys and we realized, oh, this guy's role is to be kind of like the oil in the machine. Mm -hmm. And when the oil's not there, oh man, there's some grinding going on. We need that other elder. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he brings a perspective. Uh, I have a really gentle elder right now. And I said, mm -hmm. man, we need his perspective mm -hmm. because I can tend to be not gentle. And I need the sensitivity of another guy to say, whoa, 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 you know, mm -hmm. tone it down, go easy. So it's that kind of thing. So it's identifying around the table what that is and again give away ministry let them do what they do best let them take the lead sometimes so we we talk a good game as presbyterians and we probably don't want to get into all of this but kind of how does the teaching elder relate to the ruling elders mm -hmm. we still have lots of vestiges of three mm -hmm. offices in our mm -hmm. in our history in our tradition it's kind of still there um i think the pastor who decides that he's the only guy that can do stuff is on the road to burnout mm -hmm. um Either occultism, I mean, not occultism, but cultism about the cult of the individual. Mm -hmm. And we know how that's gone in the broader culture. Uh, when that guy mm -hmm. goes off somewhere, all of a sudden the whole thing unravels. 
uh, or even in our own context, when we think I'm the I'm the pastor, I'm the only guy who's equipped, you know, to lead the small group or the Bible study or to do this or to preside or do whatever. Say, well, no, that's actually not the case. And you will be healthier as a young pastor to rely on your elders, to listen to your elders. Because at some point, if it hasn't happened for you guys already, you're going to get outvoted. Mm-hmm. And how a pastor responds to being outvoted by the session tells a lot to me about the guy. Yeah. Because the session has power. The session makes decisions. The session has authority. <clears throat> Individual elders, even the teaching elder, it's derivative. Mm-hmm. And it's moral authority. I don't really have authority until the session sits. And we agree. And I think you need to sit longer to come to understanding and agreement. Uh, I am really nervous about three to two decisions at a sessional level. I am very uncomfortable at the presbytery level of a 60, 40% vote. Mm-hmm. So at that point, uh, we are not being led by the spirit at this point because mm-hmm. there's a significant minority that doesn't agree with the majority, whether I'm part of that or not, to say we need to sit longer and listen to the other side to somebody's missing something. Mm-hmm. And same thing at Synod. Those kind of votes mm-hmm. are, are terrible. And that's one of the reasons I've been praying a lot for the Great Lakes Gulf. At some mm-hmm. point, you have to decide to get along in the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the difference was between Yodia and Syntyche, but he says, <laughs> you guys need to agree mm-hmm. in the Lord. That's a decision they're going to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like to be able to come home from a presbytery meeting, like at the end of Acts 15, and say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. A 60-40 vote percent says, hmm, I can't say that. Mm-hmm. Not with a really mm-hmm. good, robust defense. Um, uh, might think 40 percent aren't listening to the holy spirit you might be thinking 60 percent aren't listening to the holy spirit so we need to sit longer and take a little longer so so i think for young pastors it's to listen to their elders sit with them um young young and arrogant meaning old and arrogant is really just bad because that's arrogance meaning arrogant mm-hmm. and i've had those kind of issues too uh, so just learn humility so that might be another thing to, to teach my younger self is go with humility, lead with humility and grace all the time. Uh, I recently preached at RPTS, I preached a, a sermon on kindness, just to be kind. Uh, you can believe what you believe, you can say what you say, but be kind in the saying of it. Uh, and I just, I cringe sometimes at social media when I see well, particularly younger men just put stuff out there and go, I actually agree with what you've said, but man, I totally disagree with how you said it because mm-hmm. yeah. you didn't win anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm kind of embarrassed maybe to agree with you. <laughs> yeah. So no. let's learn grace, humility, and kindness. And we'd go a lot further. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm, uh, I'm going to always preach on kindness now. That way nobody can critique my sermon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, there's a funny yeah. story about that. A new young pastor, maybe you've heard this guy, you know, he shows up at church and he, and he does that. He preaches a sermon on kindness, the very first sermon. That's really great. The next week, he preaches the same text, basically the same sermon. <laughs> people say, okay, maybe, you know, maybe just he's getting adjusted, new place, new whatever. Um, we'll, we'll give him some slack. Third week, he preaches the same thing. And finally, as you know, the church comes and says, look, you need to move on. He says, well, we'll move on. We'll apply the first sermon. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's good. So there might that's be good. Something to do. Hey, I'll preach on kindness until we start seeing it. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. no, that's, feeling it. Um, yeah, no, everything you said um, was, was hitting home there. I mean, I'm preaching through Ephesians too. And, you know, kind of Paul starts out that second, second section, you know, with the imperatives, you know, to put on humility, gentleness, and patience, you know, and so those are things, those have just been ringing in my head ever since that sermon. But then also, like you said, that section in 411 to 16 of, you know, the pastors equipping the saints for uh, the work of ministry. And I know there's debate how to take that text, but anyway, I think, I think it lends to a philosophy of ministry, kind of like you just laid out where there is a delegation and equipping of members to minister to one another, uh, minister the word to one another. And then, yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. And I think on two on that, uh, you know, all of the members. So yeah. men, women, old, <laughs> young, um, I met, you know, teenagers back in the day and I'd ask, you know, what, you know, what would you tell the church? Well, we're good for more than babysitting. Mm-hmm. You know, so, mm-hmm. so start pulling in our younger members into significant mm-hmm. ministry, whether it's, you know, doing evangelism or mm-hmm. ministering to the poor, you know, do deacons take along a teenager? Just yeah. come and just come and watch. Just be yeah. part of this. Uh, yeah. That kind of that kind of service and exposure. Uh, yeah, and I think also uh, allowing women to minister as God has equipped minister, women to minister. Yeah. Um, so there are lots of things that that uh, are available for them to do. I think too often, maybe more recently, some of those things have been closed down for whatever reason. Um, I don't think that's healthy. Um, I am. I don't know where you guys are on this. This is another podcast, maybe, but uh, we have women deacons at our church. Uh, they are very, very valuable. Uh, I think we've got a good biblical apologetic for it. Yeah. Um, so, and I think we we do ourselves a disservice by yeah. um, keeping them from doing those kind of acts of service. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're yeah. in good company, Pete. I take no exceptions. <laughs> Joyfully, I take no exceptions. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't have any either. Um, cool. Well, we're 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 about at an hour, but we do have to get in. Uh, this has become a a trademark of the Blue Banter podcast. A just kind of a fun little brief theological question at the end. Um, we're we're swapping it each month, each round of guys. The first month, uh, the question was not not did Jesus get sick, but could Jesus have gotten ill. Uh, Aaron and I both answered that question uh, originally with a, a no. He could not have. We were outvoted. Uh, we lost 0-4. Uh, Kyle Borg, Barry York, George Gregory, and Nathan Eshman all went against us. I've since changed my position to no and yes. Uh, we won't We won't get into that now. But So th- for this run, and we've already asked Joel Hart and Daniel Howe this question, and I'll just mention the verses. These aren't to load the, the deck or anything, but just to to put out there why we're asking the question. So um, it has to do with individual guardian angels and do we have any? Matthew 18.10, Jesus is speaking about the little ones and he mentions their guardian angels. Um, in Acts chapter 12, after Peter's broken out of prison, goes Rhoda goes back and everybody's like, you're crazy, it's not Peter, it's his angel you know, and then Hebrews 1, 14 speaks about the angels as, as ministering spirits. And so we're looking to settle this, this age-long debate within four episodes. What is, what is Pete Smith's thoughts on uh, if we have individual guardian angels or not? 
and you're not going to tell me what your votes are. <laughs> not <time>. yet. Because so, <laughs> who am I to disagree with others? Yeah. Uh, you've already well, you've already stacked the deck in in some ways uh, because <laughs> the the story in Acts is very strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's his angel, right? I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't really know what to make of that. I'm even preaching yeah. Acts, and I'm still right. not sure what to make of that. <laughs> Um, so I would like to think so, but mm-hmm. again, I don't think the scripture is clear. Uh, I think the, the promise in Psalm 91, yep. he's given his angels charge mm-hmm. over you. I don't know if that's, you know, dele- designated and delegated, you know, that to this particular guy. So, uh, this particular angel. So for my lifetime, he's assigned to me. That might be pretty boring and heartbreaking for some of you guys. <laughs> oh man, why'd you get that dude over there? Yeah. Why are you watching her? Yeah. I got this guy he doesn't do anything. You know, yeah. he doesn't sin. He never listens. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. And then what? After I die, he gets a new assignment. You know, right. I don't, uh, I don't know if it works that way, um, but uh, he does give his angels charge. So. I suppose in light of the acts, I might say, sure. But again, mm-hmm. so what? I don't I don't think it really matters. I'm at the application side now. Right. Um, so I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to take a firm stance. I'm not going to be dogmatic on a place mm-hmm. that, to me, doesn't make a lot of difference other than the fact that he's given angelic support. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I brought this up one time in a sermon. It's right after a, one of our members had a really severe bike accident. Mm-hmm. And the question was, is the promise of Psalm 91, does it stand? He's given his angels charge over you to keep you, lest you fight, you know, you, you stumble and, and, uh, and fall. And you say, what happened? Mm-hmm. You know, were those angels momentarily distracted? Mm-hmm. Were they uh, on assignment somewhere else? Were they being waylaid? You know, uh, there's that really strange episode in Daniel. Yeah. Uh, the angel being resisted by the Prince of Persia. Again, I'm not yeah. real sure what to make of all of that. But uh, so what happened? And, and, I, and I said, or did the Lord tell the angels, stand down? Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll do nothing in this moment because their default would be to help. That would be my right. thought. That's what their charge is. Lest you mm-hmm. dash your foot against a stone. And, mm-hmm. and the Lord has to tell them, for my own glory, or for whatever purpose, don't. Right. Uh, I've thought about that when Jesus is in the garden and he starts being abused and so forth. He says, you know, could I not summon angels? And I'm wondering, are there angels looking into this just saying, mm. just give me the word, give me the word. <laughs> right. They're, they are horrified, I'm guessing, to see their Lord before whom they would cover their faces and never stop saying, holy, 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 being so treated. Yeah. They're wanting to intervene and uh, he doesn't. So uh, that's a little poetic license, preacher's license to just kind of imagine what that might have been like. Um, yeah. They're right. They're right there. Yeah. The whole story with, you know, Elisha, he sees the <clears throat> angelic realm. I don't know if that's just a momentary thing. Did he live with that kind of sight all the time? Did mm-hmm. he just see the angelic mm-hmm. host? Or was mm-hmm. it just that moment when he's surrounded and protected? I don't know. Yeah. But, um, they're there. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, that's good. Thing. Yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. Um, so, so you were pretty much in line with, with where other guys are at. Uh, Joel Hart said he's uh, significantly uh, softened on this, you know, to where he would be more willing to say yes now than maybe he would have been 
two or three years ago. And um, surprisingly, uh, um, I don't know why I say surprisingly, but <laughs> Daniel Howe wasn't dogmatic, but he was like, yeah, I think so. Like he was, he was um, pretty clear cut on it uh, somewhat. And, and I do think, I mean, like you said, I don't know what exactly we're to make of those passages. And like you said, it's, it's not going to be the main point of Acts chapter 12 sermon because it's like the so what. But I do think that's kind of the most plain reading of that. You know, I mean, it's just like, OK, that is what it is. But like you said, I mean, it's not that that we need to make a big uh, a so what about that within the context of Acts chapter 12 or whatever. It's just kind of noted in passing. But with that passing comment, I think that's the most plain reading of it. So but I think I think that's where Aaron and I kind of both are is, you know probably maybe <laughs> so, so then you're back into that whole thing and it's like well who's the angel that lets peter go right right is it his own or is it some you know where where's his where is his yeah his other guy shows up to release right. him so you're right. left with all kinds of speculation and we're really not told so all kinds all kinds <laughs> yeah well that that's 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 kind of some of the fun questions we want to ask is ones that have been uh, debated in a friendly way and uh, aren't going to force guys to take sides or, or anything like Indeed. this. Thanks. That, yeah. 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 So thank you. Thank you for giving mm -hmm. the, the Pete's take on that. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is, uh, this has been another episode of the blue banter podcast. Our guest has been uh, Pete Smith and Pete, we do appreciate your time and, and your wisdom that you shared with us. Um, we're looking forward to your book coming out. And uh, until next time, whether you eat, drink, or banter, do all to the glory of God. Mm -hmm.